All right, please be seated. Today we have asked Second Baptist Church member and Channel 2 News anchor Keith Garvin to share a word that God has laid upon his heart. It is a timely word, it's a critical word that we all need to hear in our church, in our city, and in our nation. Here is Keith Garvin. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, I, I wasn't for sure I was going to be able to tell the story because I didn't know if my wife was going to be here or not. She is here. So uh, here we go. It was a few years ago, uh, I came home, and my wife, my wonderful, amazing wife, Lisa, was in the kitchen waiting for me. And in that kitchen also uh, was about three or four dishes in the sink. And um, I had no idea, but she was extremely upset about these three dishes. Uh, and, uh, you know, like a dragon breathing fire. I hate to say it, put it that way. But she was very, very upset about these three dishes. And so uh, I immediately started washing the dishes right away, and that, that, that failed to quell her anger. Um, and so since, uh, you know, I, I didn't know what to do, I said, hey, babe, I'm sorry. You know, it's just three dishes. And she says, it's not about the dishes. And so I grabbed a broom, because it was not about the dishes. Let, let me start sweeping up. I started sweeping up, and, and, and she's still not really, really happy. So I grab a, a dishcloth, and I start wiping down the counters, and I don't know what to do. She goes upstairs. Uh, I finally get up the nerve to follow her upstairs, and she's still upset. Long story short, it took about five or ten minutes, but I, I said, babe, I, I still don't understand. Why are you so upset about the dishes? And she said, it's not about the dishes. And she begins to share her heart with me that the, the dishes were kind of an exploding point, but she begins to share with me that the dishes were just emblematic of months and weeks and months of, of in her eyes, I, I wasn't paying attention to the house. I, I, I wasn't dedicating myself to the house chores and wasn't spending enough time with her and the girls. And, and, and for her, you know, Putting flowers in the backyard was not just about putting flowers in the backyard. It was the amount of time that we spend together going to the store to pick out the flowers. You come back and you plant those together. It, it was emblematic of me not paying enough attention to my house and my family. And the dishes were just the spark that blew the top off of the whole thing. I really, really wish that uh, we could talk about uh, this issue when we were all calm and we were at peace. Um, because just like in any relationship, we certainly in the family of God, uh, and, in, and really as mankind, we are all in a relationship. And, and anyone who's married will tell you that when you are in a relationship, a marriage, it is best to talk about your problems or issues as they come along. You do not want to keep on waiting and holding that in and that frustration finally gets to a boiling point, and then all of a sudden there's dishes in the sink, and things blow up. I think what we've seen in the last uh, few days and weeks in this country is that the United States has some dishes in the sink uh, that we have not taken care of for quite some time. Uh, we've tried to ignore it, and I believe as a church, not Second Baptist, not Dr. Young, I believe the body of Christ, I don't think has dealt with this issue the way God has had us deal with it because it's, it's an issue that has been in this country for not just years or decades or generations, but for centuries. So how exactly do we handle that situation uh, the best when it comes to uh, the issue of race? 
Dr. Young, a few years ago, uh, did a sermon called the, the Tale of Two Cities. It was based on a, a book by Charles Dickens, but it was about his, his sermon was about Houston and how we have Houston, the most diverse city in the entire country, more cultures and ethnicities than any city, even New York. There were two cities within this one city. On this side, you had a city, and I admit, admittedly, I probably fall into that city. Prosperous, no one has a perfect life, but prosperous uh, in terms of housing and, and your, your schooling for your kids and jobs, uh, having a future, making plans, things are overall pretty well. On this side, this city's living the American dream. While in the same city, there's another segment of the population, American citizens as well, and when it comes to housing and education opportunities and job opportunities and healthcare and things of that nature, not only are they not living an American dream, they are living an American nightmare. And just like you have the tale of two cities, when it comes to the issue of race and racism in this country, I believe that you have basically two camps. There's always some, someone in the middle, but if you turn on cable news, you, we, we, you, it's pretty easy for you to see that it's the loud voices on the fringes, on the extremes that get all of the attention. But let's just say we have those two main camps. This camp over here, racism, oh come on, that doesn't exist anymore. You guys are making it up, it's just a crutch. You just want the government to give you more stuff. Racism doesn't exist anymore. My goodness, we gave you a black president for eight years, what more do you want? That, 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 that's the thought. It, that feels like it's coming from this one particular camp. The problem with that argument or that belief is racism by biblical definition is a sin because anyone, anytime anyone of any color looks at somebody else of a different ethnicity and or different culture and you look down upon, you dislike, you dismiss, you ignore, you have an irrational fear of someone because of the color of their skin, someone who was made in the image of God just like you, that automatically is the definition of sin. And we know there is no sin that will be fully eradicated until Jesus comes back and sends the devil to hell for eternity. So if racism is a sin, we know that racism, of course, is alive and well. Of course, it can, can be damaging and have damaging effects in the lives of a lot of different people. It, it's, so if you, if, for people who are in that camp, if you believe that racism doesn't exist, I would say the Bible would say you're dead wrong. Do you think the devil tomorrow morning will pick up the Houston Chronicle or New York Times and say, wow, Americans have reduced the divorce rate in this country in the last 10 years by 15%. Well, I guess I can't try to split up families anymore. Might as well move on to something else. No, he uses division, he uses sin, like racism, to divide. It's a tool. When has the devil ever taken a tool off of the table to use to divide people? He's, he's never done it, and he won't do it. Racism is a sin. Of course he's going to use it to divide people. And then you have this other camp over here. My gosh, racism, racism, racism. There's nothing I can do in this world. There's nothing I can do. I can't, I can't get an education. I can't get a job. I can't live where I want to live. I can't do this and that. Now, yes, we've established that racism is a sin, and of course it can, can, can wield its ugly head in a, in a lot of different ways. But I'm talking about born-again believers who allow themselves to be paralyzed by the issue of racism. Uh, in 
if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you, you, you now have a relationship with God. Uh, Genesis uh, 15, 1, God is telling Abram before he changes his name to Abraham, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. He's there to protect you regardless of what your skin color is. He, exceedingly great reward. You have a relationship with him. In, in the book of Isaiah, he tells us, have no fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You belong to me. That means every single human being before God ever said, let there be light, he had a plan for, he had a will for, he had a purpose for, regardless of your color. Jesus says, John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. What does that mean? Without him we can do nothing, so with him we can do all things. Also, that word abide, uh, what it basically means is to cling to, to hold on to, to strive with. So Jesus is telling us, if you have accepted me as your Lord and Savior, regardless of what you look like or what country you came from, what your culture is, if you have a relation, if you've accepted me as your Lord and Savior, you now have entree to the Father. You now have a relationship with God through me. And as long as you hold on to and cling to our, our Savior, he has promised that he is going to hold on to us. He's not going to let you go. And so I, I know in, in, in the Christian world, and uh, particularly in, in uh, I know in, in African American uh, churches that have predominantly African American uh, memberships, there's this, you know, there's saying, I know all of you probably know it, there's this saying, there's this mantra, God is good all the time, all the time God is good. Is God good all the time if you've been a victim of racism? Is God good all the time until you deal with the sin of racism? I mean, he's, he's good when he, you've lost your job and he, he finds a way to sustain you and still provide, provide for you, right? Uh, when you uh, have a sick child who's in the hospital and God heals and brings that child home, he's good then. Why would God not be good and not be able to deal with the sin of racism if it affects your life? Of course he can deal with it. There is no sin that is too great for our Heavenly Father to handle. There's no sin in this world that can overpower the love, the grace, the mercy, the power, and the truth of our Heavenly Father. So this camp over here, yes, we've established racism is a sin. It can impact people in very damaging ways, but you cannot allow yourself to be overwhelmed by any sin. When you do that, you are negating the very power of our Heavenly Father. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, just not, it's just not true. And so both camps have this issue of race and racism wrong because they're looking at it from the wrong point of view. Race is, it, race, the, racism can play out in social ways. It can play out in economic ways. It can play out educationally in the criminal justice system. But you will never, ever, ever, ever be able to take a social solution, a political solution, or an economic solution and deal with a sin, a sin like racism. The only solution to any sin, including racism, is a biblical, godly solution. And, and, and that, that's where so many people uh, get this issue wrong. But both camps are wrong. So how do we handle it? We as God's people, how, how are we called to handle it? Well, we handle it like we handle any other sin boldly but wrapped in love and grace and mercy in God's truth. We identify it. 
we call it out, and we deal with it. We're not called to hide. The, the Bible is very clear. There's a very clear theme throughout the Bible when it comes to sin. You do not coddle it. You don't play with it. You don't dance with it. You certainly don't ignore it, and you don't sweep it under the rug. We are called to call out sin, and as believers in Jesus Christ, we're called to lead the way because the world is looking at us, and, and God wants to, he, he wants his will done here on earth, and he allows us to take part in that will. And when God looks at the world and he sees that the world has a problem with anything, he first looks at the church to see how his church, how his people, how the body of Christ is dealing with it. And if we aren't dealing with it according to how God wants us to, according to his will, the world will never, ever, ever get it right because we are his hands, we are his feet. He, he, he allows us to be part of his will. We also, we have to be active. Um, you know, in my job, uh, not to be too graphic, but I've seen, um, I, I've been on a lot of scenes, a lot of really, really bad scenes. I've seen, uh, I've seen people murdered, uh, children, seen people who unfortunately died in car accidents. I've seen people who were hit by trains. Never before I saw the video of George Floyd over a week ago had I ever seen another human being take his last breath on this earth. A man who died, who was killed before our very eyes. I had never seen that before. And there's, there's something different about this time. We, we've had videos before. We've, we've had protests and we've had marches before. But there, so many people, my heart was broken when I saw it. And I know that there are plenty of people in this country and around this world, millions of people whose hearts were broken as well. And people have responded differently this time. And I, I think it, it, it calls for us, the church, to respond differently as well. Just this past Tuesday, I was uh, downtown, I was working, and there had been a rally. Uh, many of you probably know about it. There was a rally, about 60,000 people showed up. And it lasted from about two until six o'clock. And uh, at about five, by 5.30 or, or, or six, those, of those 60,000 people, about 59,500, maybe 59,600, they went home. They came out, they exercised their constitutional right to protest, to rally, to march. They let their voices be heard, and they went home. Unfortunately, there was a, a remnant, and we're not even for sure if, if this remnant was even part of that original 60,000, but a remnant of folks who showed up, and they weren't there to march, they weren't there to protest, they weren't there to rally, they were there to cause trouble. So uh, HPD had to deal with it. Uh, and I was out there, and I was covering it as part of my job. And, you know, there, there, was, there were some tense moments. Uh, I ran into one of my uh, good buddies who's on HPD, younger guy, and, uh, you know, he was in line with all of his other fellow officers, uh, men and women, and he had, a, you know, the, the riot helmet and the, and the face cover and everything, and, you know, we, we spoke and acknowledged each other. He was pretty busy, so we couldn't uh, talk too much. Um, and um, there was a point where we were right in front of the George R.R. R. Brown, if you're familiar with downtown Houston. We were on Avenida de las Americas, and, and then right here was McKinney Street, and, and the officers were in a line, in a, a, a wall of officers, and they were trying to push all the people who were on Avenida de las Americas onto the sidewalk. They kept on saying, this is, this is unlawful assembly because you're in uh, the street, you, you need to go. And they, they were very, very patient and very, very calm. And 
At one point, you know, every, a few, every 15, 20 minutes, uh, people in the crowd would start throwing water bottles, and they were, kinda, they were tossing them kind of in an arc. Uh, and so, you know, you don't want to get hit by a bottle anyway, but you, you, could, you could see them coming, and even people in the crowd would say, hey, they're throwing bottles, and people would look up, and, you know, you could knock them away or move out of the way. Well, this, at this one point, uh, there were three vehicles, a fire vehicle and two state troopers uh, in their two vehicles, and they were turning from McKinney onto Avenida de las Americas, and these people were blocking the roadway. Uh, and, you know, one guy kept jumping in front of the vehicle, and his friends had to pull him out of the way, and they let the fire vehicle go, and then all of a sudden some people put posters on uh, the windshield of, of, the, of the DPS officers and on the driver's side. And at that point, HPD... They, they had to move because they were, they were not only blocking the road, but they were now blo blocking these officers. And when, when a, a, a small wall of HPD showed up to move them out of the way, that's when a lot of chaos really ensued. There were a lot of bottles just started getting, you know, flying all over the place. And I was looking right at this guy in a red T-shirt, and he took a water bottle. He was probably about 15, 20 yards away from the, that first line of police, and he didn't toss it. He pitched it almost like a fastball, a baseball. He hit one of the officers right in, in that face guard, that face shield. And when HPD saw that, that's when they said, okay, no more patience. We need to move. We need to get these folks out of here. And there's a, the assistant executive chief, uh, chief of police uh, named Troy Fenner. He was out there with his men and women. This is the guy, he's second in line to, to Chief Acevedo second in line in HPD. Chief Acevedo was a, you know, a few blocks away. He was out there with his men and women as well. And uh, Troy Fenner, I've interviewed him uh, many times, really good guy. And, and before I go any further, we, we have to say that HPD, those officers, those men and women, they did such a fantastic job of protecting downtown Houston and protecting lives and protecting property. Uh, and, and we obviously, there are a lot of people at HPD who, who, who are members of our church. Uh, I have friends, you know, people at, at, at our 1463 campus uh, who are part of HPD. Um, and I know the vast, vast majority of them, if they had been in a situation uh, involving George Floyd, anything like that, every single one of them would have stopped what happened. Uh, none of them would have participated in that because I know the type of men and women they are. But, but back to uh, Finner. Uh, I remember about two years ago, I was on a scene with him and uh, something involving officers. And, 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 and another issue before that night had happened about two weeks ago. So we're interviewing him about what happened that night. And my bosses call and say, hey, when you get done talking to him about that, ask him about the other incident unrelated that happened about two weeks ago. So as I'm about to do that, uh, we finished with those, the first set of questions. I said, hey, Chief Finner, I want to ask you about the situation from a few weeks ago. And one of his spokespeople steps in and says, hey, we're not going to talk about that kind of stuff. Not here. You'll need to, you know, access him some other way. And he said, hey, no, no. He said, I'll answer his question. I have a problem. You know, that's what we're here for. And he answered my question because that's the kind of guy he is. He's, he's straightforward. He's transparent. And he's, he's honest. He's going to tell you the truth. So Finner was out there. And I'm out there, you know, with my phone. And I'm filming everything. And after this, this, this last rush with the bottles flying all over the place, um, he walks up to me and says, hey, Keith, man, um, we're going to need you to step aside. We're going to need you to get on the, the sidewalk because it's time for us to take back the street. My brothers and sisters, my, my, my dear friends, 2020, June, summer of 2020, it is time for God's people, the body of Christ, to take back the street in the name of God.
<laughs> it's time to take back the street. And, and how do you do that? Christianity is not a spectator sport. It, there, there's no such thing as being on the bench in God's family. We all, we have different roles, but we all have a role to play and we're all, we're all starters. There is a time to be still, there is a time to pray, but God also tells us there is a time to act. And again, because I believe for some reason it's different this time, now is the time for God's people to act. And now is the time for God's people to lead the way uh, on this issue. Uh, and again, you do it by acknowledging, admitting, understanding, pray, praying, certainly. I've been praying for, for healing for our nation. I've been, I've, been, I've been praying for those four officers who were involved in what happened to George Floyd, that God would touch their hearts and, and, and either convict them of whatever was in their hearts that led them to do what happened that day. Uh, and and if, they aren't, if, if they aren't saved, that he would lead them to, to his son, you know, Jesus Christ, and, and they would be saved. We, 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 we certainly have got to pray, but at some point we pray and God tells us to act and now is the time to act. We act through prayer. And another way to do it is to follow Jesus' example. He was so wonderful at everything because, he, of course, was God. But the way he formed relationships was amazing. I mean, Jesus was a master at forming relationships with his disciples, with, with people who had nothing in common with him. And it, it's up to us to, to be that and, and follow that example today. Uh, how, how in the world are we going to go around the world and spread the gospel of all, to all nations if we never sit down and, and even have a cup of coffee with somebody that we don't know, somebody who doesn't look like us? Why would anyone want to be attracted to the God we serve and the God we love if that God's not even going to sit down and, and break bread? God does the saving, but he uses us in his will to plant the seeds. How can we plant the seeds if, 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 we, don't, if we don't spend time with people who don't look like us, who we don't drive the same kind of cars we drive, who live in different neighborhoods? We, we, we can't do that. We can't follow that mission because we, because we are keeping ourselves in a bubble in so many different ways. We've got to develop relationships. Relationships are so key. Uh, I have one of my very best friends. His name is Jonathan. He lives up in the Dallas area. Love Jonathan to death, the kind of guy he is. When Harvey hit, he called me up on the phone. He said, hey, I, I have a truck and a couple of my buddies, we have a boat, we want to come down and we just want to help. You know, what can we do? I gave him some numbers. I got him in touch with somebody who was a, a member of, of Second Baptist at the time, and he came down, and his own time, he, uh, they, they brought his truck down and he stacked pallets of water and, and handed them out and, and gave them out in different neighborhoods, and uh, he started mucking houses, and, and, and that's just the kind of guy Jonathan is. Well, we met about 16 or 17 years ago when we were going to church together in Northern Virginia in the D.C. area. Uh, I was raised in Bryan College Station. He was an Aggie, so we hit it off right away. We had that instant connection. Uh, we, we, are, are, we obviously went to church together. We were in men's Bible study together. Jonathan and I, we went to Rwanda twice with our men for a missions trip, and he was my brother. We just grew to love each other, you know, we still do to this day. His job brings him down to Houston every now and then, and about two or three times a year, uh, he'll call me up and he'll say, hey, I'm in town, and we, we have lunch, or we have breakfast or whatever. I've been up to Dallas, and, and I've had lunch with him and his family. So just about two or three years ago, we were sitting down having breakfast, and Jonathan, you know, we're catching up, we're talking about the kids. He starts talking to me about uh, his oldest daughter, Sarah Grace. And he says, you know, Sarah Grace, 
We're so happy that we're raising her the way that we are. I mean, she loves people for who they are. She doesn't care what they look like, where they come from. And we're so thankful about that. Her favorite teacher just happens to be an, an African-American kid who goes to church with us. She's, he's her favorite person. And, and I just love the fact that we're raising her that way. And he says, because I wasn't raised that way. He said, he said Keith, I, I've never told you this. And at this point, I'd known him for like 13 years. He said, Keith, when I was growing up, I used to hate black people. He said, when I was at A&M and in the Corps, and this is, this is not a reflection of A&M or the Corps, I'm just trying to tell you my friend's story as he told it to me. He said, when I was in college on, in, on campus, when I would see an interracial couple, it would make me nauseous. It would make me sick to my stomach. And, and when I was hanging out with my buddies and we would be drinking, we'd be doing all this or whatever, he said, I never attacked anybody. I never, you know, hit anybody but I would just say the most vile things that you could think of. I would, make, I would make some of the most vile jokes about black people that you could ever think of. He said that I graduated and I was kind of, you know, peddling around looking for jobs and I, I just felt empty. You know, I stopped hanging around my buddies and I just felt empty, I, you know, and, and, and I started going to church. I started going to church and I got introduced to Christ. Uh, I, I got saved, I accepted Jesus as my savior and he cleaned me up of all that sin and, and he convicted me of so much of my sin, including that horrible sin of racism. And uh, he said, I don't, I, don't, I don't live that way anymore. And he says, as a matter of fact, as nauseous as I used to be when I used to see interracial couples on, on campus, when the Lord convicted me of that sin, I felt even more sick to my stomach. And I said, wow. I said, Jonathan, no, I, I had no idea. I mean, man, we've all, we've been brothers. We, 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 man, we're, we're friends. Like, I, I never would have de detected that in you. And the point is, you know why Jonathan could tell me that story? He knew he could tell me that story because we were brothers who loved each other, and he knew I wasn't going to judge him for his past. We had a personal relationship. We could share that with each other. And, and, and that's what we need to start doing today if we were ever going to have open, honest conversations about any of this. We, we, we have to be willing to sit down and talk to each other. We also have to be willing to listen to somebody who might have a different perspective. I, I didn't grow up exactly how Jonathan grew up. He didn't grow up how I grew up. But, but we can still share our experiences. And, and, and when someone tells you, hey, I don't understand what you went through, that's okay but you're never gonna be able to get to that point and have those personal relationships if you don't sit down and talk to somebody who doesn't look like you or live where you live. It's just not gonna happen. I end with this. Uh, I'm about to go uh, to, when we leave here, um, I have some friends, um, some uh, workout buddies. And uh, one of them, the host of this, uh, this little gathering, uh, he's a, a member of Second Baptist, he's actually one of our deacons. And, uh, it, but it was, put together by one of the other guys in our group. Um, he texted like Tuesday or Wednesday and he said, you know, I, um, everything that's going on in this world, I, I, just, I think I just wanna sit down with, with some of you guys, some of the guys I trust and some of the guys I like, and I just wanna talk, you know, I think we just need to talk some stuff out. So we agreed to do that. And so we're, we leave here, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go hang out with those guys. Now there's about six or seven of us and to my knowledge, the host, who's a fellow member of here at Second and uh, a brother in Christ, obviously, he and I are the only ones who are believers, as far as I know. The other, other guys are great guys, you know, really good guys, but I, I don't think any of them have ever professed Christ. So I'm going to ask you to do three things. One, please pray for that, that, that little gathering. 
that, that, that uh, me and our other fellow brother in Christ, your other fellow Second Baptist family member, that, that the Holy Spirit is there and that he speaks truthfully and powerfully through us and, and, and that some good things come out of that group because these are young guys who just, just, they just want to try to see if they can get this right and try to talk this out. That, that's request number one, pray for that. And then pray for other groups. Pray for other groups like that to just kind of sprout up all over the place where people who, who don't seem to have that much in common just start sitting down and just start talking to each other and, and, and have these little groups. And then the other thing is, you know, we're, we're to be doers of the word, just not hearers. So, of course, pray for those two things. But then another thing I would ask you to do is yourselves. Start texting people whom you know. Pick up the phone call. Pick up the phone and make some calls. We all know how to do Zoom now, right? <laughs> Why don't we get on Zoom and let's start, let's start putting some meetings together so we can sit down and we can talk about this issue and we can get to know each other. And I believe if the church leads on this issue like we should have been leading for, for centuries, the world is going to notice. And if we get this issue right finally inside the church, it can spread across the entire world and then some of these other issues that we care about that are near and dear to our hearts, if the world sees that we're getting that, this particular issue right, they're going to start paying attention and listening to these other issues that matter to God and matter to God's people. It's time to take back the street. In Jesus' name, we can do it. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to kneel with me wherever you are watching at home, right here in the worship center. I want us all to go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Right now, we're going to go to the Lord in a time of collective prayer. I know as we're praying and kneeling right now, all across Houston, all across this nation, all across this world, there are Christ followers who are also praying, so we unite with them. And I want to lead us to a time of guided prayer as we, as we pray specifically. First of all, I want us to pray for George Floyd's family. Lift them up. Comfort them. Help them. Have mercy upon them as they walk through this time of grief. Also, want to pray for the deep pain of our nation, the collective grief of our city of our state and in this country.
We pray against the sins that Keith called out, the sins of injustice, the sins of racism. We pray for ourselves. We pray for our families. We pray for our friends. We pray and ask that God would give us the power to repent and to root out all bitterness and racism and apathy and anything in our hearts and minds that is offensive to God. And it's our prayer that we will truly become one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. God, we cry out to you today. We cry out to you as a church. We cry out to you as a country that is bleeding and mourning. God, we ask for your deep healing. We ask for true repentance. And we ask, God, that you would lead us, that you would show us in the days and weeks and months ahead what we can do, what we can do as a community and as individuals to bring unity and love and justice and freedom to all. God, thank you so much for Keith Garvin, for the great work he does in this city, for the great work he does in this body of Christ. Thank you for his word. May it go out and may it grow in our hearts today. We lift up all these prayers. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.